Today on IFS Talks, we're so happy to be welcoming back Cease Sykes. Cease has over 40 years of clinical experience specializing in recovery from trauma and addictive processes. She's currently a senior lead trainer of IFS, and Cease has also developed a workshop as part of an ongoing worldwide project to explore the personal narratives of therapists and the impact on their work. Today, we're having a conversation with Cease about how to create order out of the chaos of addictive processes, how to use IFS to find the patterns in addictive issues or in any intense polarized system, basically how to stay in charge without losing our minds or our hearts. Cease, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome back. Mm, Thanks. It's so good to be with you guys. Welcome back, sis. It's your take three for this podcast. So grateful for that. The topic you suggested to discuss today is the chaos of addictive processes. Such a complex topic. Mm. In the 2017 book, Innovations and Deliberations in IFS, you published a chapter called An IFS Lens on Addiction, Compassion for Extreme Parts that illustrates how to interact compassionately with the entire client systems and safely intervening with the polarizations you say are at the center of the addictive process. In that chapter, we can read that you see addiction has, and I'm quoting you, an unremitting cyclical process characterized by a power struggle between two well-intentioned teams of protective parts each attempting to bring balance to the client's internal system. You also say this escalating polarized struggle between two teams of protective parts who are trying to control or medicate underlying emotional pain is foundational to what you call the addictive process. So, is this escalating polarized struggle responsible for the cause you mentioned as a topic for this conversation? What is this chaos? And what causes it? Mm, that's such a, uh, a good question, Annabelle. Yeah, I think it is absolutely what the chaos looks like. And one of the things I've really been thinking about is the idea of this, the inner world as a system. So that one of the things that uh, helps clinicians make sense of what they're seeing in front of them is to begin to think about the patterns that they're client is engaged in and to clump their behaviors, just clump them together a little bit. One of my favorite pieces of the model is a piece that I don't actually think we talk enough about, and I'm trying to talk more about it, which is that the word it's called internal. We get that family, we get that systems. So family systems, uh, you know, Dick, of course, that was his origins was as a family systems thinker, writer, and trainer. Uh, and he uh, wrote some meta frameworks, you know, just some big picture issues around how family systems work, analyzing lots and lots of different models. And, and in the process, developed his own. I was trained as a systemic thinker as well and trained in family systems. So the idea, not just that we have parts, but that the more the manager tries to control the more the firefighter feels desperate 
to um, create autonomy or freedom or get out from under, that the more that part field tries to get out from under, the more triggering it is to the managers. This power struggle um, is creates chaos. Uh, it you know it burdens exiles over and over again in a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, so that the piles of um, unprocessed trauma uh, accumulate. And so that by the time they see a therapist, they've had lots of experiences clinically in treatment or many times, um, but nevertheless feel that their life is chaotic and out of control. So that's in the field and it impacts the therapist and therapists often feel out of control or don't want to work with that really. I want to refer to an expert. And what I'm, what I think is that if you know IFS and can work with your parts and your system to be comfortable with firefighters, that it doesn't, that you can do really beautiful things with these clients. What is it that generally makes therapists uncomfortable with firefighters? Mm. Because it could cause the client to die. Yeah, so so the managerial role becomes really embedded. It does, Tisha, yes. Uh, I mean, there's many things that make, you know, clinicians uh, feel uncertain and want, you know, we've all had the feeling when we're sitting in front of a client and they're going through something and thinking, thinking to ourselves, I certainly have, I assume others have as well. Oh my God, I've got to refer them to a real therapist. You know, <laughs> I mean, I feel very good about my skills, but you know, those moments where you just think who could do this? Someone else must be able to do this better than me, you know? <clears throat> and cause you know, the human you know experience is so confounding. What is scary from what, what I hear, uh, you know, in the consultations and all the trainings and so forth, is just the fear that the client could die. And um, also the confusion, like I think the other polarity for clinicians is the polarity between wanting to be compassionate because this person is suffering, but it also triggers our parts that are like, what is wrong with you? What do you keep doing this to yourself? Mm. Okay, I, I, you're self, this is the self, you're ruining everything. So the polarity, and that's it's not if it's it's not the opposite of compassion, but it is definitely not compassionate. It's challenging. It's critical. It carries judgment in it, and I think that whether it's in our personal lives with a loved one, or whether it's in our clinical experience, it triggers that same dilemma in in the clinician, which is should I help them or should I, you know, uh, grab them by the collar and shake them? So challenging. Sis, maybe we should start off clarifying what you mean by addictions once um, there are so many addictions, right? It can be screen time, overworking, late night drinking, overspending. So those are some common ones, low risk ones, you say. So we have firefighters, some more risky than others. Do you subdivide them in high risk and low risk? Yeah, I think that's a short, that's an easy way to do it is high risk and low risk. So less, I think, they are less different. I don't want to divide them by their behavior so much as their intensity. In other words, I think there's more similarities than differences mm -hmm. for the clinician, not necessarily for the client, okay, but for the clinician in terms of understanding and intervening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
for someone who's binge purging, someone who's using alcohol and drugs, and someone who picks up their phone 19 times a day to do porn or place a sports bet, right? So how the clinician intervenes with that, they seem very, very different. Of course, each of those clients is very unique. But their process of feeling stress in using and then trying to get back in control and then feeling out of control and alone and then using the cyclical nature of what they do, that there are big patterns there that are similar for anyone who's caught up in a cycle where they're trying to both relieve themselves of pain and yet the relief choice they've chosen brings them pain. When that's the case, they're more these different issues are more similar than different for us as clinicians to enter in. Mm-hmm. You say IFS can help us find the patterns in addictive issues or any intense or polarized system. How can we do that? Right. Yeah. How do you, how do you start doing find that? Find the patterns. One of the ways that I started doing that is to think about the big picture intentions of each of Dick's three categories of parts. Managers, which are self-explanatory. The managers manage life. We all have them. We all need them. They try to take care of business and uh, they're task-oriented, but managers are also growth-oriented or improvement-oriented so that they want to push us to do better, be better. And from in a healthy way, that makes us, you know, take a new class or try something new or learn how to, you know, whatever, play pickleball. But when that gets extreme, then those improvement becomes self self Self-challenging becomes self-loathing, self-contempt, massive criticism. So what I say to my clients is I just say that, you know, there's looks like there's a whole bunch of parts that are are really um, activated that are are, um, telling you how, how, what a bad job you're doing rather than trying to define one part or another. Or I might say, it looks like there's a whole bunch of your parts, you know, you're still going to work. You came to your session today. You're, you know, you did this stuff with your kids. You're making your car payments. So a lot of things, a lot of your managers are still on board. Um, although I hear your critics are kind of out of control right now. So that group has been pretty busy. And then this other side over here, uh, it sounds like, you know, tell me more about what's happening for you with drinking this week and with your sports bets or, you know, something like that. So all the parts that are trying to give you some kind of relief. So the big picture of managers is to keep in control and keep improving or make 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 sure it doesn't get worse. The big picture of firefighters is to get some kind of relief. And I know I'm not talking about exiles here. <laughs> what I want to say about that is that exiles of that our vulnerability and our burdens and our attachment wounds are just even fearings of alienation. That kind of emotional pain um, causes us to try to protect ourselves, you know, starting from a young age. And we might protect ourselves by being very managerial and getting very involved in being good. And we might protect ourselves by, in other kinds of ways, by acting out in different kinds of ways. And many people, most people have some variations on both. Interesting. But for when I'm working with my clients and when I'm teaching this model, 
I want to actually overemphasize the relationship from self to protectors. All roads lead to Rome. They're going to take us back to the roots. And the roots are like roots. They're underground. They're under the surface. They're in the dark. And we're going to go there and we need to do that. But if my client can, when they identify their big picture ways of functioning, that helps them unblend from that. And they have to have enough unblend to find those and be and be available to those exiles. Hmm. So finding one exile might be very good and you might do some good work. But for most people with heavy, heavy protectors, that's not going to change their functioning that much. You say we need to know how to unblend polarities. So first of all, how do we know someone is blended in a polarity? Well, polarities are the meat and potatoes, or, or for all the vegans of the world, the beans and rice <laughs> of human experience. I mean, it's universal, right? It is universal. It's not unique to, to our clients or to us. We all have parts of us that do things that other parts of us think we do too much or uh, or too often or spend too much time on or spend too much money on. So finding, because that's a, an, an attempt to find balance. And so when I do workshops and I sit and I do a visual, find a part that's doing something that other parts of you think you do too much. I've never had anyone raise their hand and say, you know, that I, I'm not aware of that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. I mean, maybe, you know, it's social media, whatever. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, It's universal to have some kind of a polarity between doing the right thing or keeping ourselves on track or working or taking care of obligations in life. And I think there's also a universal wish for rest, relaxation, pleasure, comfort, novelty, or adventure. And that's what I think that's, I don't, I think our firefighters can become addictive. They can engage in negative behaviors, but they don't all engage in negative behaviors and they aren't all extreme and they're, they have a role in our system to, to balance manager energy. When our system is burdened, it is even in addiction, it is not just the firefighters that are out of control. The managers are out of control. Mm -hmm. They're desperate. <laughs> they crave order, peace, predictability, just as much as um, firefighters crave their practice or their substance. There's craving on both sides and desperation on both Beautiful. sides. Beautiful. I think really, really quickly back to how easily it is to get polarized as a therapist with firefighter energy. And I was thinking about it before our conversation, because it's not like, I feel like I meet with addictive people in my life and clients, not necessarily from managerial energy, but mm -hmm. from other parts that are maybe checking out more subversive firefighter behavior, mm -hmm. um, like parts of me that don't mm -hmm. trust uh -huh. and parts that are like, how do I know if they're okay? And 
um, wanting to kind of like put my hands up, like feeling helpless, like those kinds of, it doesn't feel like it's managerial towards the firefighters, but it uh, feels I like it's it. a little bit, it yes. feels like it, it gets a little more nuanced. That is a great statement what you're saying, because yes, the person who is using has powerful, powerful, right? Powerful polarities, right? So, but what's happening in the therapist, how would we, we might not necessarily be, we're, we're smart enough and evolved enough in our process to not start wagging our fingers at our clients um, and telling them how messed up they are. You know, uh, we're much more subtle, but we're, but paying attention to uh, the parts of us that feel vigilant, uh, that do feel, should I trust this person? Do I, should, do I think that they're telling me the truth? Um, Parts of and parts that feel helpless or hopeless, that will be our exiles. Those are very uh, natural and inevitable responses to firefighter parts because part firefighters, you know, those parts sometimes lie and defend or avoid or avoid the truth or avoid accountability. So that and <clears throat> so that we naturally have parts that are vigilant. And I do advise client, therapists to really pay attention to their gut and to how they feel with someone. And if they feel like something's happening that doesn't feel truthful, um, to pay attention to that. And so rather than to, to get focused on the other person and are they telling me the, tr the truth or what's going on with them, I always invite uh, clinicians to pay attention to their own parts, their own inner world. Their own inner world has very important information like this doesn't feel right. This doesn't add up. I'm feeling a little manipulated here. I am. And so <clears throat> to notice and to speak for the parts, you know, um, but where I would go with that is it, if I had to make a statement around that, you know, or if I wanted to make a statement, I might say something's coming up in me where I'm not totally buying everything you're saying to me. So I'm wondering if there's a part that needs to tell me this information in this way. And I'm wondering if any other part of you has a different point of view here um, will be a way to go. Or I wonder if, you know, I, I, be, I wonder about this part is really trying to convince me that you're not using or you didn't go there or you didn't do this. And it seems like it's really trying to convince me of that. And I, I hear that and I hear the energy behind that. Could you tell what would happen if you and I get to know that part a little bit and listen to it? And listen to its intention, you know, and, and what if, so I'll try to do an unblend so that they have self toward that part. So I don't have to be, I don't have to be in control of it. My, my wish is always for my client to gain control over their parts so that I don't have to take that role. My role isn't to control them and be vigilant. My role is to help them find their own parts that are vigilant toward themselves. Does that make sense? Oh, I'm, my mind is blown. I'm like, wowzer. This is great. <laughs> and it makes sense. And I, I think it's it's really helpful to hear that hopelessness about a client, which I mean it makes sense, but that that that's self-referential. Like there's there's my exiles poking through. Um but it's in the field, Tish. It's, it's in, the, in field. the field. So you're gonna if you're feeling it and you're feeling it strong, you know your client's got it strong. Yeah. Because it's that strongly in the field. And I would say probably. It feels like manipulation or stealing or lying is the biggest block. 
I don't think that's the biggest block. Those are just protective parts. And I want to get my client to know them. I do think the biggest block to healing is hopelessness and despair. If we think this, this, if we come at this thing uh, from a place of this, this, I don't think this is going to get better. Then <clears throat> I think that hopelessness acts as sort of, it's like, um, you know, a chain around the ankle. It's a drag on the system. And it, I think it affects the process and it's understandable. And when my client has hopelessness toward themselves, I always say, let's be with that part because there's reasons why they're hopeless. You know, for many clients, they're the only one in their family that's trying to get better. Everybody they know is crazy or messed up. So what, so they're, you know, they sit with someone like me and they go, oh, really? You know, there are parts that say people don't get better are, have been proven over and over. And towards themselves, I've been trying and trying. So, but to say in IFS, the gift of IFS is to say, let's, you know, I know you're going to think this is crazy, but let's be actually with your hopelessness is actually as big as it is. It's just a part of you. And actually, if you and I get to know it a little bit, I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. And we never try to get rid of parts in IFS, but, but I'd like you to be able to unblend from it. I'd like you to have some choice. My wish for you is that we could help that happen. Sis, you also say we need to use tracking when working with addiction. Mm. So what is tracking? What should we track and how does it help us with addictions? Such a, you're asking such great questions, Annabelle. Yeah, tracking is a family therapy term, as I believe where it comes from. And I'm sure family therapy but pulled it from systemic therapy thinking prior to that. But anyway, it is to pay attention to sequences. What happened, A happened, and then what B, and then what happened after that, and then what happened after that. It's just that simple. It's paying attention to sequences. So the sequence when you're checking a couple might be, well, you when you say that, how does that impact you? And then when you respond this way, how's it impacting you? So you're going between two people. And it's sort of obvious what I say impacts you, what you say impacts you that. In IFS, we're doing that internally. And we're watching how one part impacts the other with outside of the client's awareness before they have IFS, right? So they're not aware of it. They'll say things like, I don't know, all of a sudden I'm in my car again and I'm driving over to my dealer's house. And they're not aware that of what happened, which is so we help them track. And I might specifically say a little bit more about their day or what's they're going on. But over time, you might <clears throat> we're going to help them track one feeling from another. There was a feeling they had. They got scared. They got lonely. Their their exile got triggered. Um, or their manager got exhausted, and then their exile got triggered and felt isolated and their firefighter said mm. and there it's that that sequence is out of their awareness but when what ifs does is help people go inside and when we we all know that when we're inside we learn new information and we learn how one part relates to another what someone who's using can learn is they have a pattern and uh, when we all do but it's so It can, it can make things um, so much clearer when they say, oh, even if we can't do a witness and I'm burdening that day, to just say, oh, I, I, I was lonely. Yeah, 
no, I'm feeling, yeah, I, and they can't maybe witness an unburdened that day. They, they don't have enough self-energy to listen to all that. They don't. And I, you know, I, but a lot of times I help people just recognize that exile and notice it, send a little energy to a kind of a one-way street sort of thing with yourself to part. And, um, but then begin to notice it's so illuminating. Oh, I didn't even realize I was how lonely I was. Or I didn't even realize how nervous that I was, how scared I was. Or, um, I didn't really realize that hurt me. I didn't know, you know, those things that we all don't exactly know. And, uh, but there's then a sequence of, of activities. We, we do a, um, uh, an experiential in many level one and, you know, level two, maybe exercises, find a t- that time that someone hurt you, a little thing, not the biggest thing in your life. Someone just looked at you funny and then, you know, find that and then look at the ways you coped. Maybe even find something that happened in the training that was hard or challenging for you. The hit in exile, right? I felt, I didn't, I felt dumb or I felt not seen or I felt nervous or I felt exposed. And then watch how you covered it up. Mm. How did you, how did you protect your step in? That is a sequence that is, a, and it can be a pattern. Um, and so that would be what tracking looks like. And we don't name it maybe as specifically as we could uh, in our teaching of it, but that's really what we're doing. Yeah. Do you have any tricks or tips to uh, externalize that tracking? Do you like to make maps or do you like to um, have have clients journal about parts that they encounter? You know, probably so many therapists are more creative than me. (laughs) Is it important just to kind of get it and go through? It does help to get it and visualize, but absolutely to write it down, to draw it. You know, you guys know I use a triangle in my teaching. I think of the system in, in as, as I organize it via the triangle. I do triangles with my clients or I do soft triangle, just tracking, writing them down. Um, I think that uh, sometimes with my clients, I'll do stuff in the room, have them move. All right, this, this side of the room is all your firefighters. This side of the room is the managers. Over here, we got the little exiles. All right, let's come sit over here for a while. So, you know, to just, you can use space in the room for a little bit and do some direct access um, in in each of those places. And uh, so there's a lot that, I guess if I were externalizing, that's probably the biggest kind of externalizing I might do is have people use different places in the room where I might do direct access for a time then maybe have them sit right here in that self and then go to another part. Um, But people who are good uh, with drawing, can draw their parts, mapping, um, and people who can do homework. You know, sometimes people love to have uh, index cards for their parts or some of the the supports in the uh, IFS store. I I don't know why I don't tend toward that, but they're very 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 helpful for many many people, and um, as some as symbols that they can hang on to. Yeah, absolutely. Since you have been always saying and writing it that first steps are start with the managers. Mm-hmm. Why is that so important to start with the managers? Because it's universal to be blended with our managers when faced with out-of-control behavior. <laughs> it's like physics. <laughs> if this fire, and someone corrected me, I think it's centripetal force, but if firefighters are twirling, twirling, twirling around over here, 
then you remember how that goes, the faster it twirls, it starts to pull in other things toward it. Um, this is what happens to us and to the loved ones. When you watch someone self-destruct and twirl and speed up in a self-destruct or self-harming kind of way, the speed and the intensity of that draws us in closer. And it's actually harder to stay detached than to, to fall into that with them. And so um, it's inevitable <laughs> that someone has firefighters towards their own behavior uh, and towards the behavior of others that they love who are suffering and um, spinning. Mm. Yeah. And if we don't, we're always looking at the firefighter from a manager perspective. And it's just the thing that you're talking about, Tish, is that there's a subtle way in which you're like, mm -hmm. a subtle way in which we don't really buy in, a subtle way in which we or the client doesn't truly accept the positive intention of those firefighters. And when, that, when their positive intention isn't uh, really understood, they are highly unlikely to trust. I get really curious about how that is a function of our society and culture as a whole in how regard we regard firefighter behavior. And I'm just wanting to hear a little bit of, of your thoughts on that. Well, that reminds me of a conversation we were having before all this started about having fun, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and how this idea of what, 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 I mean, and fun can be widely defined. You know, one person's fun is, I, I don't want to give any examples. I'll just say something dumb. But anyway, <laughs> but I, you know, but fun, you know, that is my real sense of firefighters role in all of our life. I univer we universally as humans, for me, that is my perspective. We need managers or parts to keep us functioning and help us moving forward a little bit. And we need parts that help us rest, relax, uh, have, in, enjoy pleasure and sweetness. Janine Roth wrote a lot of books. One of them was, if you're going to eat at the refrigerator, pull up a chair. You know, really welcoming <clears throat> uh, parts that are comfort eating. And uh, she did. She presented through IFS conference once. You know, she was very, you know, was appreciative of the IFS model. And took a little piece of chocolate, and I think she passed everyone around a piece of Hershey, Hershey's Kiss, and she said, I, "I think we just all need a little sweetness in life." And it went right through me as to what, how many, how culturally, me and our larger culture has such a polarity around pleasure, around sexual pleasure, pleasure, sensual pleasure, around the pleasure of food, the pleasure of altering our consciousness. You know, um, I'm, I'm putting this, uh, Martha Sweezy and I are working on a manual right now, um, a skills man manual for working with addictive processes. And <clears throat> so I was looking up the first, the first examples of alcohol are like 6,000 BC. And um, there were dice, four-sided figures, you know, <laughs> Yeah, 3000 BC, um, you know, the humans have used an ecstatic experience. They've used um, plants based, you know, other kinds of properties that help alter consciousness for eons. 
And they've been part of the human experience. They might be used for rituals and for milestones and uh, for um, marking birth and deaths. Uh, But they have been employed as a part of human experience, ecstatic dance. Um, So, you know, whether it's chanting, Native American chanting, monks chanting, you know, so nuns saying the rosary. All of these kinds of repetitive things also alter our consciousness. And so, and some of them alter our consciousness in really large ways. So we have, I think, a polarity about this. We're afraid of being out of control and almost afraid that the natural inclination towards pleasure will overcome us and sort of ruin us. And um, I think that if you take the polarity out and the judgment out um, that <clears throat> the human, that our, each human wants to find balance. We don't seek to be out of balance. We might seek an experience and then we seek return. So that is not to say that I think that everything should be unregulated. Um, I don't want to get into all of this politics around what is most of our drug laws in the United States, Portugal, you guys are different in the United States have really been used to control and discriminate against um, minorities and black, our black and brown BIPOC population. There's, there are whole books written about this and um, it has so little, some of it has so little to do uh, with helping um, people uh, and so much to do with uh, institutionalized race, racism. So in addition to sort of the cultural polarity around pleasure that I think we struggle with, at least uh, in the United States, um, I think that we also have used a lot of control and government control and institutional control to uh, control people that um, to control the progress and to control the access to opportunity. Yeah. Um, and but separate even from substances, if we also look at the institutional approach to alcohol use, to eating disorders, to any kind of behavior, it's scary because they're high risk behaviors and it's scary. But there is a tendency toward control and management as opposed to curiosity and understanding. And I'll give one example before I pause. I'm thinking about someone I was doing consultation with and she's working in a, a treatment center and one of the uh, women in her treatment center who was very uh, shut down. Everyone was recovering from drugs and alcohol, very shut down. But one day she told an extremely poignant story about losing her son. And it was really, no one had had heard any of this or knew her story at all. And she said it in a small group. And then the next day she found a way to bring some, uh, you know, get some pills and, and ended up bringing them into the treatment center and used them and then got caught. And then was asked to leave the treatment center. And I understand the, they're, they were afraid. And even some of the other people in recovery were afraid. You're bringing pills to us. We can't be close to them. And we don't want that near us. And which I totally understand that. And yet it's so short-sighted because we would call that a huge breakthrough for that person. And then their fire, they, the pain it brought up created a strong desire to medicate and I understand there needs to be some regulations and some policy and safe containers. 
And yet at the same time, I would wish for there also to be within treatment settings um, and a, um, a more uh, nuanced understanding of uh, the people aren't just using because they want to get away with something and they're just rebels and they can't handle authority. Um, it's maybe a little more complex than that. Thank you. I really appreciate hearing your voice with that answer. Sis, you say we need to connect even with self-destructive destructors. Is that possible? <laughs> You're asking all the hard questions, Annabelle. <laughs> it's painful. But yes, it is possible because the blocks, again, this is where IFS is such a genius model. Thank you, Dick Schwartz. <laughs> when we call something apart, it's an object. It's other than us. It's separate from us in naming it and identifying it. So we just have to identify what parts of us are blocking us from viewing this self-destructive part from an open-minded way. You know, and I say to my clients a lot, you know, to when they were, I said, tell those managers, those firefighter parts, they're causing trouble, they're making a mess, and they need help. There's we we, we stipulate to that. They're right. However, however, <clears throat> if they'll step back, those parts are much more complex than they look. And even the toughest manager you know, kind of can hear that because really that's known in the system. If you think about it, there's always self behind all parts and within each part. So the idea that there is something more than destruction and um, violence or chaos uh, in a firefighter, uh, that there's more to that part than meets the eye. I think that that's, we can get to that place. And when we're in that place of curiosity, um, we can hear, you know, talking about someone who's using their pornography and just their particular types of pornography are attracted to. And they remember, you know, somebody saying to me, I just felt like, you know, this, this woman, she was just looking at me in my eyes, like she could see me and she wanted me. And so the idea of someone being wanted, you know, this is such a powerful, powerful desire. And then, and we all, we all want to be wanted. That's universal. So when we can get to that exile, the part that's wrecking their life and making them use it, pick up their phones in the middle of their workday and wreck their, you know, risk their work and blah, blah, blah. It, you know, we, if we find what's behind, what appear, what is, what is, we can't, I always say, never an excuse, mm. always a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not here to pass out excuses. You don't get excuses for, you know, the parts are causing, they're hurting other people. They're hurting you. These are the risks that, that are going on here. So never, we don't, I'm not trying to excuse or minimize the impact of the behavior. That, that's not useful because the, if you do that, the managers don't trust. They're like, okay, you people are crazy. No, we're not, we're not stepping back. No. But when you understand the, when you accept without excuses, no excuses for this, it's really causing trouble. But what if there are reasons? And we can get to that. And what if we can address that? That's the gift. And Manabel, it doesn't take just one session. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's a process. Any advice for therapists on on addressing that? Like, you know, just to, in in general, like 
is it working with your own system? Is it really tracking internally? Is it making sure that you... Oh, good you know, question. There's a couple of different things. Of course, working with our own parts is helpful. But in particular, if we have been impacted in our personal lives by, you know, parent, we, if we've lost relationship or connection uh, to um, family members, to parents, to loved ones, to lovers, to partners, to our kids, our own experiences, our own fears, our own disillusionment, our own losses. This is powerful stuff. This is real. And so when we, to process our losses, uh, I think is really important um, when uh, trying to be in self toward our client that seems to be in a losing game, you know, uh, and we can either be triggered to want to do too much or we can be triggered. It's just the, what you talked about, Tish. We can, we're not necessarily going to start yelling at them, but we might feel, a, for instance, a hopelessness. Uh, or we might feel an overwhelm, or we might be ruled by fear. So to look at any losses that would relate to, uh, you know, the, the client in front of us, the any ways in which we have experienced personal loss, we don't really always have great ways to honor our losses. And um, yet from that place, when you've worked with your parts, it can be such a gift. Uh, you know, <laughs> knowing that we can recover from loss, I think, uh, is helpful with the clients that they can recover. I think the other thing, and I don't know how to create it exactly, Tish, but I, the idea of hope, the idea that there is possibility here. Um, this is true for any kind of trauma recovery that's a long, slow process. Uh, I've worked, you know, um, from the beginning of my work uh, as a therapist, I've worked with physical abuse and sexual abuse in families and uh, <clears throat> survivors of sexual abuse and men and boys who had sexually abused. And, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of desperation in all that. Uh, yet um, I'm over and over again impressed by uh, the human spirit and the ability of people to um, heal. So I think to hold on to our belief that anyone can heal. And my job isn't to get them to, I don't know, some extreme place, some place far down the road, some image of healing. My job is to help them from wherever they are today to move the ball forward, to move it forward. I might be at this little section of their recovery or of their healing or this part. I might be early in, I might be in the middle, I might be later. Whenever we meet our client, I don't know uh, what the proper outcome for them is or what it's going to look like or what their life is going to look like. But my job is to hold out the hope and the possibility that they can heal and to take them to whatever their next step is, uh, as opposed to some ideal. I don't mean to lower the bar, but to, you know, but to have within ourselves a clarity of our mission. I'm not here to fix them. I'm here to help them get to know their own system better. And from there, healing will occur. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Even just spending time with those extreme firefighters inside with some amount of understanding. What a triumph. Right. And everyone doesn't want to give up their drugs and their alcohol and their stuff. Right. 
many people feel quite relief in there and many people that's not their that's not their thing that's not their goal that's not where they are today so i'm not going to say we'll go away we too you know when you stop using and you've gone to this many meetings then come back and see me well, <laughs> i mean <laughs> i do actually get that um, I've been that therapist in a certain way or, or been close to that therapist in a certain way, yeah. I think, in my life mm -hmm. or been one degree of separation from them. But what I think IFS allows us to do, and I don't think every model does, IFS allows us to see those parts, to see that ambivalence or that disinterest in, in changing, to say, okay, so these parts of you are committed to this practice. What You are sitting in a therapist's office, though. So what is it you are here for? Um, back in the day, the first rule of the ethics of social workers is client self-determination. Hmm. And I think, in other words, they tell us why they're here. We don't tell them why they're here. So what if we, you, will you tell me what you do? Well, I want to, well, I, my girlfriend left me. I want to talk about that. Hey, trust me, we're going to get to the using. <laughs> It'll, the, we'll, we'll get there. We're going to get to the pain. You know, so I can accept wherever my client comes and see where we're going to go next. I don't have to know that. Sis, do you believe IFS can play a special role approaching addictions as it seems to be the case with psychedelic assisted therapies? Well, and that's a whole other subject. Um, and not exactly about addiction, but it's about a different view of looking at different forms of medicine or medication or chemicals um, or drugs um, in a different light. And it is requiring and inviting our, our uh, community, our, not IFS community, but our larger psychological community to look at drugs in a little more complex light. And I am very, very fascinated by all that. Of course, we I'm always careful, you know, we're not looking for the silver bullet here. There's not one drug that's going to get us mm, over, of course, get us over, right? Yeah. Or one experience. Absolutely. So there's a lot around that. There has to be a lot of support and preparation around all of that. And other people in our community can speak to that quite directly. Uh, but I think where it would relate to my view in particular is the idea of becoming curious about the impact of any drug on our experience and the intention of that um, and not making an assumption. Thank you. Sis, would you agree with the journalist and TED Talk presenter Joanne Harry's statement that the opposite of addiction is not about sobriety, but about connection? Uh, I think that is a great statement. Um, He, there is some controversy about him, and then, so I don't want to get into controversy about him in particular. Mm -hmm. But around that statement, what I would say is, yeah, that's a great way. To, what we do in IFS is help someone connect to the different kinds of parts in their own inner world in a healthy way, in an open-minded way, in a curious way, in a welcoming way. And um, so there's enormous amount of connection. The other separate from that, but from internal which is that isolation is a terrible, the shame of having to hide what we do uh, creates enormous isolation and feelings of alienation from other. And that, uh, that shame-based loneliness and isolation is very, very painful. And uh, so healing 
um, and working directly with that shame, I think can make someone feel uh, more willing and bring out the courage to connect to others again. Thank you. Sis, what about the new book and manual? What's the title exactly that you are working on? Well, we have a working title, so we'll see what the final title is. But there's two phrases that are important to me, compassion and the, also the phrase addictive process rather than addiction. I, of course, use the word addiction because we all understand it, this common understanding of it. But I'm trying to talk about nuances, uh, have a more nuanced view of the word addiction and of the idea of addiction and of what addiction is. And I do think that it's an internal process, not a thing. And I think I want to invite us to look at it in a more broad, nuanced, complex way. And um, it involves every part in the system, not just a part that uses. So uh, that's why I'm invested in that title. Uh, Hesse and other publishing companies want titles to be able to understand a book by looking at the title. <laughs> and maybe, you know, so we'll see how all that goes. But that's why the and compassion for, because I do think we're always running up against our own internalized and larger cultural judgment around um, anything to do really with pleasure and senses. We have some fears that we're just going to get, we're just going to get crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I say it in a light way, but I think it's a, I think it's a real a polarity that enters the therapy room every day. It is. And when we will have the manual, sis? Uh, <laughs> soon. Soonish. Soonish. Soonable. <laughs> um, we actually are, are um, I, the light is very much, we're closer to the light at the end of the tunnel now in terms of sending it to the publisher. And of course, there'll be a lot of back and forth around that, but I would like to see it around out Uh, I don't know how long it takes them to get things ready for distribution, but I'd like to see it by the end of this year. Beautiful. It's been a labor of love, and um, I'm so grateful to Martha Sweezy, who is quite a brilliant uh, person, and I'm very lucky to yeah, have her. Yeah, she's amazing. I really appreciate your um, desire to change the languaging, too, because that's that's how things shift, is bringing attention to them and and naming why. Right. Thanks for saying that. That's right. We, I want to jar us a little bit off our center. Uh, look at these, this idea of addiction. I want us to be a little off center. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Sis, thank you so much for sitting with us again and for such a valuable conversation on addictive processes. And congratulations on your coming manual. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And we hope you can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you. Mm, thanks, you both. Thanks for asking such great questions. <laughs> thanks for giving such great answers. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Mm, I look forward to connecting again. Thanks, guys. <laughs>